1: And we're broadcasting in this eighth year across the world from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. This is the place where technology meets entertainment. Another fabulous day in LA, looking across all of West LA to the water. It's absolutely beautiful and 85 degrees or something. It's absolutely perfect. Now. This week Mary McNamara wrote a great piece in the LA Times and she was saying that um, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and their ilk are no longer social media. They're actually the new main media. And she began a very necessary discussion. No matter where you are in the world, that... um, You probably followed the Roseanne Barr fiasco a couple of weeks ago when a racist tweet that she put up led to the cancellation of her top-rated show 24 hours later, and the show was rating its butt off. Viewers above 20 million. It was the number one program on the network. So that happened quickly youtube tightened up its monetization policy to a whole scream of protests snapchat is expanding into india even vogues offering tips on how to perfectly instagram your wedding facebook's ditching trending news while testing a breaking news feature you gotta sit there and think well is this really social media anymore or is this main stream media? After the uh, congressional hearing with Zuckerberg, Facebook did its best to revive the social brand. They said they were going to return us to a simpler time when friends were actually friends and everything you put up there wasn't being harvested to... um, influence a presidential election, but the reality is that platforms such as Twitter and Facebook and YouTube are now so powerful, so divisive, so intrusive, and they're reliant on audience-drawing controversy as any 24-hour cable news network. In fact, more so, social suggests, I don't know, friendly community gatherings with You know, lots of ice cream and lemonade and local musicians and chili cook-offs and strawberries and cream. But these Twitter, Facebook and YouTube certainly aren't that. So all of you who are mindlessly tapping into various phone apps to express your hatred of the mainstream media are actually now joined the mainstream media. Social platforms are the new mainstream media you know when you think about the manner in which the president announces policy decisions and White White House personnel changes and pretty much anything else that he feels like tweeting about Twitter's effectively become a member of the White House press corps even more than their predecessors the new mainstream media is fueled by an arms race for cult-like followers, I think "cult" was a very appropriate word. Whatever happened, you know, whatever happened to the more civilized and respected terms like readers and viewers than our followers? Pretty cult-like. The racist tweet that led to the cancellation of Roseanne was issued pretty much as an aside. I mean, she was responding to a random follower in the middle of a bizarre thread about Chelsea Clinton. I'm sure she says she was full of Ambien, but who knows. Barr later blamed Ambien because she couldn't blame a reporter or a host for taking her words out of context because they were her words. And then also, despite as soon as the shit hit the fan, immediately deleting the tweet... She really couldn't deny she'd said it because it was up there for millions and tens of millions to of people to see so in the new mainstream media there's no context you're always on the record to your own followers and anybody else who retweets you in any other media outlet and the major media outlets who are constantly scanning social platforms for sources and announcements and trends and feel-good moments and spats and offensive statements. But the Roseanne's bar story was notable in that it occurred almost entirely on Twitter and followed the new mainstream media news cycle. First came the crime, then the outrage from everywhere, then the apology, which then brought more outrage about how it was totally insufficient including demands for the cancellation and firing. Roseanne's cancellation was then followed by celebration, extended threads and thought pieces, and then reactions to those extended threads and thought pieces and demands that someone figured out how to cancel President Trump. But then the next day came the flip side. Roseanne returned to Twitter, at first apologetic, and then quickly the counter outrage began, riled up by the cancelled Trump campaign. Many people with American flags and make America great again hats argued that many nasty things have been said about the president. And why weren't those people cancelled? Why wasn't everybody who'd said anything nasty about our president Cancelled from their television shows and from their late-night comedy programs. And then, of course, three days later, Samantha B called Ivanka Trump an inappropriate adjective that begins with C, and the war heated up again as more people faced off. If you go to sack Roseanne, then Samantha Bee's just as bad. She should be sacked. Of course, the two situations were totally different, but nevertheless, that sounded like a good argument for a little while. In the not-too-distant past people, most of them young and techie, posted and tweeted and befriended others and followed in in an effort to communicate with people they knew or they had a kinship with. There were engagement announcements and baby pictures and, of course, lots of pet pictures. The conversations about love and loss and how to build your own igloo. (laughs) Non-users made fun of the photos of omelettes and skinny jeans. The random hashtags and the do-it-yourself videos. And all of this friendly banter lasted a few years but disappeared as fast as a Snapchat post. And while there's still plenty of uplifting micro-blogging and cute pet tricks, the marketing potential of these platforms was simply too good to pass up. So all of this news, for want of a better word, was increasingly supported by advertisers And the analytics kept track with dedication because that is what the advertisers had paid billions for. Eyeballs. New media barons were born bigger, wealthier, with far more reach than the old media barons. All of them totally intent on growing their user base. And as any media outlet knows, You don't grow a user base with baby and pet pictures. You grow it by compelling people to watch, read and participate. You grow it with controversy, branding, revelation and habit-forming repetition. So the new mainstream media isn't social at all. It's reactionary. An elaborate, unending iteration of Tell us what you think, journalism. Without the benefit of a reporter, an editor, a host, a curator or a guide, we sit at home on the couch in our pyjamas and we tweet and post in silence, often in the middle of some other activity, at times completely obsessed and nearly always with totally regard for the truth because, hey... Doesn't really matter. And frequently, with no truth or substance, another conspiracy theory is born, totally distorting democracy forever and destroying people or institutions without any foundation whatsoever. Pretty tragic. So, social media is no longer social media, it is a destructive major media do you get my daily 30 second read newsletter we now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers it takes just 30 seconds every day to read and every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like hyperloop autonomous cars and blockchain today we um, had a newsletter about what will cryptocurrency look like in 12 months time and tomorrow we're talking about drones and how drones are exploding on the world business stage and uh, the newsletter is absolutely free its information is invaluable we do not under any circumstances give away or sell your information so if you enroll for my newsletter at bobpritchard.com You will never get any newsletter from anyone else as a result of that. So I got one today saying, um, a letter from somebody saying that it's how they keep abreast of what's going on in the world in 30 seconds every day. So that's good. Then you can do it too. Now, starting on July the 1st, Estonia, the country with a population of one and a half million, is allowing all its citizens to travel from one end of the country to the other without ever buying a ticket. It's a fabulous idea with great economic benefits. Free journeys will be available for all Estonians using county buses, and enhanced subsidies will make tickets on the state-owned rail considerably cheaper. It's gonna become the largest national free public transportation system in the world. And it's aimed chiefly at giving people on low incomes greater mobility to go out and find work. And it also has an environmental impact cutting carbon emissions by reducing the number of cars on the road. That can't all be bad. A study of the FAIRLESS scheme by the Netherlands Delft University of Technology, which looked at the first year of the scheme, identified a 14% increase in the use of public transit, and a 10% decrease in car usage, and evidence that free travel helped low-income and unemployed residents as they become more mobile. Now, while a 10% decrease in car usage doesn't sound much, in NLA there's something like 13 million cars. You take one and a half million cars off the road in 12 months, it makes a hell of a difference. They've also taken several messages to method <laughs> they've also taken several mess me- <laughs> I still can't get it right. They've taken several measures to reduce car usage along with free public transport. They give special bus lanes, more bike rack tracks, more bike racks on buses, and they've also raised on street parking fees and reduced the number of parking spaces, which forces you to take public transport. Now, funding a transit system that's not only free, but is also widespread and efficient enough to accommodate lots of people, well, that does pose a challenge, but that's not stopping five additional European cities who are trying out free public transport schemes by the end of 2018. Seems to me that free public transport is a hell of a benefit for the whole of society. It's great for the unemployed. It's great... Uh, For people who who want to get round more quickly than the roads, it reduces carbon footprint dramatically. And if you're in the United States, most people don't realise, but the United States gives a $25 billion, that's $25,000 million in subsidies to the petroleum industry. So we provide $25,000 million to the petroleum industry. Surely we can put a few billion to provide free public transport. Makes a hell of a lot of sense. And it makes a lot more sense than giving the petroleum industry $25 billion. Now today we've got another great interview for entrepreneurs. My guest metal member, Barry James Folsom. He's a great guy. I sit with him at Metal often. And he's got over 40 years of executive management and strategic marketing experience, he's got an unbelievable track record of growing divisions and companies rapidly into category leaders and he's got an incredible CV. So to sum up, Barry James Folson is not only one hell of a good guy, but he really knows how to build businesses and profits. And building businesses and profits is a skill that only about four people in every hundred can muster. So I'll be back with my mate Barry after this short break in the Bob Pritchard Radio Show being broadcast across the world this week from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood where technology meets entertainment.
0: You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome
1: back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Now, this is the interview segment of the show where we, we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting and some of the most successful business people. We talk about what they do what's made them successful and we talk about their challenges, how they overcame them and uh, what we try to do is find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, you read through a resume and you, you say, wow, that person's got fantastic credentials but it's nice just to um, get behind that resume and find out what it is that really drives them and the reason this segment's so important is because it's really not even really it's extremely difficult to create a successful business you know we know that the failure rate of businesses today is about 95 percent so out of every 100 people who start a business 95 of them don't succeed so we need to get all the help that we can and that's why i urge you constantly to Go out, get mentors. And mentors are not people next door or your cousin or your friend. Mentors are people that have been out there, been successful, and know how the world works because there's a big difference between sitting in a college or sitting in a little office and inventing things and then going out into the real world and see what happens and the pressures that are on you. So you need to take on board all the advice that you can get um, and then build on that. Now, Barry James Falson has over 40 years. It's a long time, isn't it? 40 years of executive management and strategic marketing experience. And he's got an unbelievable track record of growing divisions and companies rapidly into category leaders. Um, People call him the Silicon Valley tech guru. he uh, His CV is incredible. So I'm only going to touch on a couple of his accomplishments in this intro. Um, we'll talk about more when, um, when I'm talking with him. But Barry's played pivotal roles in the creation of four major market categories, PCs, workstations, internet data centers, and web conferencing. He's the chief enabler at at Grow to $50 million, a strategic marketing growth consulting firm. I don't know why he doesn't hire me as a consultant. I must have a talk to him about that. Now, Barry was a strategic advisor to the CEO of Motorola's Home Mobility Solutions and served on the Corporate Marketing Council, Microsoft-Motorola Partnership Board and was executive sponsor for strategic relationships with Sony, Google, Yahoo, Sling, Sony, ABC Pictures, ABC Disney, NBC. And you know that's an incredible roster of companies. I mean, it's the who's who of companies. And um, Barry's been right in the middle of all of these. At Exodus Communications, he drove a singular focus on internet data centers, reducing the sales cycle by 50% increasing sales close rate to 100%, and he grew sales 400% in seven months. He was president of Spectrum HoloBite, an electronics entertainment company, which grew in one year from 13 million to 70 million. He was a Sun executive during his four-year hypergrowth period, which took it from 100 million to 1.7 billion. So, just to sum that little bit up, Barry James Folsom really knows how to build businesses and profits, and that's a skill that very few people have been able to master, and I'm proud to say that he's a, a good friend of mine. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show.
2: Well, thanks for having me on, Bob, and that was a great introduction. I really appreciate it.
1: You're being heard all around the world today, so... um as you always are be good. <laughs> good. <laughs> now you started your career in the early PC days dating back around 1980s or so and you've been the CEO of public and private companies in Silicon Valley. How do you, and, and you talk about turning companies around using unfair advantages. What the hell are unfair advantages? I thought unfair advantages when you went and burnt down your competitor's factory.
2: Uh, that is <laughs> the old way of doing it, I guess. <laughs> but fortunately, as you indicated, uh, mentoring is a key aspect of helping young entrepreneurs grow. And I was very fortunate that I had some mentors along my path. They included John Doer, Vinod Koshla, John Scully. Yep. And Regis McKenna. And I was very fortunate when I was CEO of Radius to have Regis on my board. He also was a mentor to another CEO of a company in, in Silicon Valley, Apple. And we, Steve and I both learned from Regis about the strategic advantage of marketing and how important it is in creating those unfair advantages. Part of that, of course, is creating uh, your brand value proposition. And as we'll discuss a a little bit here, most young entrepreneurs keep trying to add features or capabilities to a product and they think they'll increase sales and that stuff. And what I learned a long time ago is counterintuitive that by focusing on building the best product, you will not win market share, and you will not achieve the maximum cash flow in your market segment.
1: I agree. Couldn't agree more.
2: You've got to have a great product, not the best product, a great product, and marketing, which is not valued by most young entrepreneurs, is the determinant that determines whether you gain market share and, more importantly, cash flow share in the marketplace.
1: Yeah. That's true. I think it's important to point out here, you know, I, um, I speak on similar things to you. Um, I think what's important is that um, I emphasize when I present that brand awareness means nothing. It's the equity you have in your brand. You just called it brand whatever it is, but the equity that you have in your brand is what's important. I mean, millions of people heard of Kodak, millions of people have heard of Saab, 99.9% awareness for both of them, and they're both broke. So just because somebody knows who you are doesn't mean that you're going to penetrate.
2: Yeah, and that's why I call it, as part of my playbook, one of the four pillars of that playbook, I call it Big M Marketing. Right where the M stands for gaining margin dollars. Most people mistakenly think that marketing is PR and advertising and a little bit into social media, but it's really about the customer journey. Yep. And if you don't start understanding your customer journey and who is the target persona you're focusing on, And going into the detail, how is your service or product helping them achieve a goal they have? And measuring your key and only KPI, are your target personas achieving their goals? Right. And it's not about them necessarily using your product or service. That's not customer success. Customer success is they got a bonus and they got a raise and a B2B sense.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There was a study released not that long ago by P.W. PricewaterhouseCoopers um, that showed that today, um, in contribution to business growth and to profitability, the customer service, great customer service, putting that in the broad term, not just in would you like fries with that type of term, but in the broad term, customer service is twice as important as adding new products or new features.
2: Absolutely, and I, I'm going to change your vocabulary slightly there. Uh, and I'm going—it's the customer journey, not just the yep. customer support and service. Yes. It's the customer journey, and when's the have you mapped out for, and change your point of view to be customer centric? Have you mapped out every touch point that the customer has to go through from their yep. journey about discovering you? Yep. All the way through, and how long it takes them, both in elapsed time and total energy they expend using your product or service to achieve the end point, which is achieve their goal.
1: Yeah. Just just touching on touch points for a minute, um, I think it's important for listeners to realize, that, and I talked to clients about how many touch points do you have with a customer and uh, they usually say oh there's three or four i think when you sit down and look at it um you could have 10 or 12 or 14 because a person coming out to repair a piece of equipment or your delivery guy they're they're all touch points every time somebody phones the office or goes onto the website they're all touch points so you've got to make every one of those a memorable experience for the customer right
2: absolutely and you've got to map those out. And what you have in an organization, there's not any single individual responsible directly for all those touch points. And therefore, you've got the fiefdoms in your company, even though it may be small, only focused on their aspect of that and not working across function to say the reason they arrived here is because another touch point brought them over here. Right. And, and and what are we doing to do that? One of the interesting things that I did when I was early in my career, I made the development team's bonus solely focused on how many support calls we got. The less support calls we got, and by the way, I made sure the 800 number was on the product. Right. So you could see it, so they, they could call and the less calls we got, the higher their bonus. And it was amazing the cultural change that happened when the first year they didn't get much of a bonus. The next year, they, they exceeded it by over 100%. <laughs> right,
1: yeah, yeah. And,
2: and that is the feedback mechanism and the measurement systems that get you the right cultural behaviors.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. So besides adding features, um, What are other ways that companies can gain an unfair advantage? And the good thing, of course, the good thing about this is that most companies don't even consider this stuff, and yet it is the difference between success and failure.
2: Yeah. So here's the key here. There are two parts to anybody, and I'm talking more from a tech product perspective, but you can apply it to other places. There is the early part, and part of this is only two industries that call their customers users, the pharmaceutical industry and the computer industry. Right. And the first part, to get somebody, quote, hooked on using your product or service, could be an economic buyer from a B2B perspective as well as the user hooked. Right. Or B2C, just they're both the same target persona. All the way through to six months later... Are they addicted to your product or service? And if you took it away, like if I took your smartphone away from you, you would do me bodily harm. Yeah. <laughs> well, what happens is we are all linear in our thinking, and you've got to become nonlinear in your thinking, and you've got to tease out what is the found value that addicts people. And what I've found over the years that the found value if, even if you discover what it is accidentally or not, it's not a reason that initially from a tech perspective hooks people and it gets cut from the feature 1.0 list. You cut out the thing that's going to addict them to your product or service because it doesn't help you to hook them.
1: Okay, so I'm listening to this and I've got a I've got a business and um, I say to them, um, you know, identify your found value Um what do they do? How do they start? What, what's yeah, the process? It's, real,
2: it's, it's really straightforward, but they've got to change a few uh, perspectives here. Part of it is changing their point of view. They've got to identify who really is their target persona user and what are the psychographic aspects of that. Yeah. So uh, in your case, you're B2B, so you've got business people and they're trying to achieve something in their business, and they're measuring themselves and getting a promotion on, on, ROI. So you go talk to, you go get some of them together. You don't share with them your product or service. You actually give them a key word to tease out of them their unarticulated needs. Right. Everybody will tell you what they want. Most people will not tell you what they need because they're not conscious of it. So you sit there for an hour to a 90-minute session, and you coax out of them the insight to what their need is. So I'll give you a quick example that we did at Motorola in the IoT segment back when I was in there 2004-2005. We looked at, from a home security perspective, and you think about, oh, we add these features that if your home gets robbed and the TV gets taken, that the feature we add is that the TV is replaced by Best Buy and delivered, and you get a check for the broken window that's being repaired, and all that's there before you even get home. That's the feature we're putting in home security. Right. Well, we did a co-creation group. Rather than sharing those features, we, we teased out of them what they wanted And here's what we discovered, that the mothers who are professional women who aren't at home when the kids come home, those kids are called latchkey kids. Yep. Right? And no mother brags that she has a latchkey kid, but what she wants the kid to know is whether the house is safe to enter or not. Yep. So by making the house safe to enter, the kid can go in there and also tell the mom that the kid's in the house. And fortunately, we were doing it Motorola feature phones. So we were going to add the features to the phone of letting the kid know, sell more phones as well, that the house was safe to enter from our home security perspective and the mom to know the kid was home. Right. Rather than getting a TV set delivered.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I understand let me that.
2: tell you. That found value, if you took that away from that professional woman, that mother, she would do you bodily harm.
1: <laughs> okay. Now, so if I've got a company and I've identified um, four separate target markets and I have four different, um, presumably, channels to reach those people. So am I looking for different Um, unfair advantages in each of those segments?
2: Let me guess and no. Uh, The first question I'll ask is what size company are you? And if you are a Fortune 50 company like Motorola with those four things you want to go after, I'm going to give you one answer. But more than likely, you are a small, uh, young company with anywhere from one to 25 employees. Yep. And this is counterintuitive, but you want to let go of three of those market segments and only focus on one and go after a sub segment initially. And the reason is even you think about a Fortune 50 company like Motorola was with over 100,000 people, if they're even 5% effective, they have 10 times more person hours per week than you do with 25 people. Yep. It's not your network. It's not your capabilities. It's not your experience. It's not your skills. Is that you don't have enough person hours during the week to go after four. And since you, don't, since you don't have enough hours, you never go deep in any of those. I'll give you a quick example of a company I helped out. They were in the disaster recovery area. They backed up all the PCs and servers and business. I took a quick look at their sales, and 54% of their sales was in legal. The next biggest segment was 9%, and that was finance. Right. So it was clear for legal. So I got them to focus only on legal. And since we only focus on legal, I spent an hour as the marketing head, and I found a list of the budget dollars for all legal IT people prioritized. Yep. So I knew how to change our messaging to gain the unfair advantage of shifting dollars that were the, that were the higher priority list to be spent by IT and shift those dollars to be spent on our product. And that but those were our meta-competitors. So we started closing sales because I changed all the messaging. We didn't change the product. Yep. I just changed how we message, and I stole from the legal industry their term that what we delivered was business continuity.
1: Right. That, is, that, is that environment changing with all the um, te- technological assistance um, or tools that you can get now that can um, very effectively track all your marketing channels, your marketing messages, all of those things could be instantly tracked and, and worked on? Or does it say in the old days, five years ago, um, you couldn't target perhaps more than one target segment? But has that changed now with all the technology that gives you instant dashboard feedback?
2: Yeah. No, it doesn't. And let me tell you why. Because if you're going after four, you have not changed your point of view to be customer-centric, so you're touting it in your language and the way you speak, not in the language of the business people, if you're a B2B. Yep. Or if you're a consumer, in their language. So you've got to actually translate, if you're going after four segments, you've got to translate into four different business or consumer languages, depending on those four markets, right? Yep yep and 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 so i tell you you've got to translate you say i don't have time to do that exactly you're small you don't have enough person hours but if you focus on one you can change every message on your website into the language because you listen to your target persona and how they speak and what vocabulary words they're used and remember from a b2b perspective you are educating the person who is your champion to overcome the naysayers in the company. Yeah. And if you burden them with translating your speak into their speak, they give up. Because if your competitor has the unfair advantage of putting their website into their speak, then they'll just represent that company and land the business for them. There's no way you gain unfair advantage. So I'll give you one last part about the data. So for this company of disaster recovery, my tagline was uh Recover fast, rest easy.
1: Good one. Nice. And
2: after I left, they changed it to recover fast, recover fully. Yeah. But but they did the data on the messaging. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then they switched it back.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can believe it. I can believe it because you know um, you've you've got to develop a rapport with the customer, and the only way you do that is by giving them what they want, not what you want to achieve.
2: Yeah, I, I, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me hit you on your vocabulary, <laughs> and I'm going to do two things here. It's not what they want. You've got to hit them with what they need so yeah. that you get them addicted, and, and you've got to tease out that need. And I'm going to, I keep trying to change words on you, and I'm going to give you one more example that's very important for your audience here. Many of them are familiar, not all of them, many of them are familiar with the terms product, market, fit, and MVP. Don't share this with anybody else. Keep this to yourself, but if you change these, these two phrases to something else, it will make all the difference in the world to your chance of success, and it gives you an unfair advantage. It's market, product, fit. Market becomes before product. Yep. MVP stands for minimum viable product. Yes. How arrogant the development team is that they are the determinants of whether the product is viable and therefore can be shipped. Change those words to minimum valuable product. Right. MVP is minimum valuable product. Who determines whether it's valuable? Your target persona. Sure. It's a huge cultural change. Are you letting development determine what is your offering or are you letting your target persona and you're delivering the minimum valuable product right now if you are delivering the minimum valuable product versus the competitor delivering the minimum viable product you have an unfair advantage
1: I agree I agree so now I'm, I'm sitting out there listening to this and I I think, okay, so I've, I've got to really understand my target market. Um, I know who they are. What do I need to really know about them? What are the most important things I need to know about my target market?
2: Yeah. Uh, if you're B2B, you have the economic buyer, and then you have the users. If you're B2C unless you're selling men's shoes, your target market is women because 80% of all consumer purchases in the United States is determined directly or indirectly by women. Yeah. Okay? Not men, women.
1: It so, is in our house. <laughs>
2: Yes. So what you've got to do, you've got to go... So the business case, you've got two sets, consumer case one set. You need to go listen to a minimum of seven of them across the country. And ideally... A, a total of 33, and you can put them in, in, in group sessions to do this where you have five of them or seven of them at one time, yep. teasing out of them and listening to them. And then out of that set, you create your own your own target persona advisory board, have five or six of them that you meet with on a monthly basis and keep updating them and listening to them. Right. And remember, you are not, with these Sessions talking your lips are sealed. You're not allowed to talk. You're only allowed to listen and ask questions I'll give you the last key When you're listening sessions, someone will say something you relate to and it reinforces what you think pause Ask the first why because when you ask a why you get the rationale and the knowledge behind that Yeah, here's the trick after you get that answer Ask the second why, and that's when the gems come out.
1: Right, I understand that. Okay, um, so let's move on to Big M marketing. So, what does that mean? Well,
2: it stands for margin dollars, and what I what I'm saying about that is it's. Strategic marketing—you want to create new categories, and and you want to, you know, you talked about burning down uh, your competition early on. What you want to do is create it so that you choke off customers going to the to your competitors. Yeah, right. And, and I call that denying oxygen to them. And part of the way of doing that is you build up an ecosystem around your offering. Right. Okay. Okay. And you know out of out of the 50 marketing weapons they are you've got to build what i call your economic model not your business model your economic model through the sensitivity analysis is based on how much cash flow you create with all the assumptions you have and determine which are the two or three key variables that make the most difference in generating cash. So I'll give you yeah. a quick example. I uh, was working on a uh, social TV site and we had people signing up through Facebook. And all we did all the numbers. We forecasted the customers' behaviors. Not only did we forecast our revenue, we forecasted their behaviors and measured our forecast against their actual behaviors. No one does that. Tell, it gives you the insights. And then we were able to determine it wasn't the initial churn we had to focus on. It was actually we weren't as viral. We weren't getting as much viral as we thought, word of mouth out of it. So we focused our development on increasing being more viral. Right. And that actually lowers your customer acquisition cost. And since we were measuring how much word of mouth we were generating, and we weren't generating much. We fixed that and started generating a lot of word of mouth. Our customer acquisition costs came down, and our cash flow went through the roof.
1: Right. And after all, being successful in business, I mean, I talk to a lot of people who um, have a business or have a retail store, and you say, how's business? And they say, yeah, we're, we're quite successful, and all they're actually doing is making wages or losing money. Um And in the end, being successful is about making money. It's about making a profit. Um, And that comes down to generating more cash flow than your competitors um, with better margins. So how do you, what do you focus on? The volume of cash flow, which I guess chokes off your competitor, or um, increasing margins and profit, not worrying so much about cash flow?
2: Well, you've got. That's a hard question to ask or answer without more context. Right. Right. Cause yeah, I understand different that. Different criteria there, so. That's the, why I asked company, you. <laughs> I say, I say, what what I look for is you you want to be focusing on getting people addicted and focus on generating what I call advocacy word of mouth for people using your product or service. Right. And what do I mean by advocacy word of mouth? advocacy means that they're they're posting you on Facebook or they they see you and meet you and they say, hey, I, I just started using this product or service. You need to use it. That's advocacy. The other kind of word of mouth is if I'm asked, what phone do I use? I will tell you. Advocacy word of mouth is I'm in your face telling you you need to switch to the same phone I use, right? right. And so what are you doing? Where in your discussion with marketing and sales and with development are you talking about what do you need to have in your product or service that leads to advocacy word of mouth where people are pushing on people to, to buy or uh, use your product or service?
1: Right. We're running a bit short of time, but um, in the final item in your playbook is a strategic f- uh, framework. What's that?
2: Yeah, the strategic framework is all about the important aspects of the the mission statement, your core value proposition. You know, it's it, 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 you know, you kind of your why you're you're doing this, and what your culture is, and making sure the culture is supporting this and not getting in the way. And it's also understanding the strategic architecture. I'm coming more from a tech product perspective here. Strategic architecture. So you've got a long-term roadmap that's laid out. It may be evolving and you're, you're changing it on a daily basis. That's okay. But you've got it laid out at least three years of key capabilities you need. Right so that as they are building the underlying architecture of your product, they aren't precluding you from doing other things later. And I, it, 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 a short version of the story, I worked as CEO of a place where the founders came out of Xerox Park. had never built a program, much less a product. They didn't know about internationalization, yep. and it costs you nothing when you do internationalization. Translation costs you money but they didn't do they didn't structure it as internationalizable so it was a million dollar bill to go back and redo all the code architecturally to make it internationally which would have been free if they if if they knew at that time right so i can't tell you how many tech startups have had to rewrite their products because they didn't get the strategic framework right of their architecture and you go to the end and work your way backwards. Again, it's another nonlinear technique. So part of what I do is help them do a little dive on their architecture to make sure that they're not shortchanging themselves, that it allows them as the trunk to allow them add branches as they, as they build out.
1: Okay, so I'm sitting out there and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, this Barry James, he's a pretty smart guy. Uh, how do I get in touch with you?
2: It's real simple. There's two ways. Uh, it's uh, email is Barry James at GrowP050M.com, grow to 50 millioncom and my phone number is 650-400-0600.
1: I don't know why we're not working together. I'm sitting here thinking, why aren't I working with this guy? Um, Barry James Folsom, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you go go to Google and look up Barry James Folsom, there are a plethora of articles and stories about Barry James, so have a look. It'll be well worth your while. I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show, coming at you on Voice America Business Network and broadcasting from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, where technology meets entertainment. Now, here's a question bound to begin an enthusiastic discussion. Where will crypto be by this time next year? Now, cryptocurrency is worth about $500 and projected to be in the trillions by the end of 2018. There are a few things taking place that set crypto up for long-term growth. One of the best ways to gauge the growth of the digital currency market is looking at the exchanges and investment channels. After 2017, Bitcoin transitioned from being an investment for just nerds to having 90% of Americans knowing what Bitcoin is and millions of people buying them. Exchanges and investment channels are changing to meet the needs of these new retail investors. At the start of 2017, it was a pain in the ass. You had to go through crypto-to-crypto exchanges for many altcoins, and this posed security risks. So fiat-to-cryptocurrency wallets like Coinbase began to offer more tokens and there were more mainstream ways to investors to access crypto. And over the last year, over 100 hedge funds have launched crypto and uh, the major exchanges and software wallets have upped their game. So this will boost market liquidity. It also indicates that the digital current currency space is going to grow significantly. But the question is, will big governments allow digital currencies to succeed? People often, when you talk to them, they're worried about governments. Well, the answer may surprise you. Many governments are running full tilt at blockchain. In China, President Xi Jinping praised blockchain technology as a breakthrough. China's considering blockchain as one of its priorities, alongside AI, the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, and mobile communications. South Korea is using blockchain technology to track packages. And in neighboring Japan, massive gaming company Gumai launched a $30 million global blockchain investment fund. In the United States, multiple government officials and states support blockchain technology. Former US Treasury Secretary Larry Sumner said, Blockchain will change a great deal of financial practice and exchange. So to many governments, digital currencies are still a risk, posing a risk to retail investors because of its volatility. Since the start of 2018, regulators are making crypto safer for the retail investor. Some cities like Hong Kong are invas- in embracing their own digital currencies. So where will it be in 2019? Security tokens will become more common as companies opt to use regulated ICOs. More tokens will come into the fiat to crypto exchanges. We've come a long way since the early days of Bitcoin and our digital assets are becoming mainstream use and adopted. So I think the future for cryptocurrency is very, very, very. Strong. Now, if you want to make a sound investment for your future, you should get your tickets to the Crypto Invest Summit now. Tickets at the moment are $199, so you'll save about $800. You go to CryptoInvest.io. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can be ordinary and if you're always trying to be normal you'll never know how incredible it is to be outside the norm i hope you can join me again next tuesday we'll be back broadcasting from our studio on hollywood boulevard in los angeles california where technology meets entertainment in the meanwhile continue to be successful the alternative sucks this is bob pritchard
0: you've been listening to the bob pritchard radio show Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.